Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. That's to be on the screen uh, behind me. Will you read along with me this morning? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your enduring and faithful love that is extended to a thousand generations. You are the God who never forsakes or leaves or breaks covenant with his people. And because of your unending love, your faithfulness toward us, Father, we can walk and we can live and we can move and we can breathe in the fullness of joy. It comes from knowing your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, would we be people who, being full of the power of the Holy Spirit, would we make that joy known to the world that is around us? Father, even in the midst of a very difficult and trying year, would we be people who were marked by joy because of the faithful love of our Father? And with the grace and the peace that surpasses all understanding be spoken and be known through your church that this world would see you as beautiful and worthy of their lives. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to have your way in this place, to have your way in our hearts this morning. Will you sanctify us with the truth of your word? Father, edify your church, glorify your name, and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his precious and holy name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and, and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, if you're not there already, I'm gonna invite you uh, to turn with me to Philippians chapter one, and we'll be in verses one and two uh, this morning. About 15 years ago, I'd wrapped up my uh, freshman year of college, and I had the opportunity to go on uh, a short-term mission trip for a few weeks into Southeast Asia. We went to the, the tiny nation of Sri Lanka, just off of the coast of India, and we were a part of a disaster relief trip that went in following the tsunami that had hit uh, just about a year and a half prior. And so our task with the group that I was with was to go in and dig wells uh, in communities that had been decimated among families who had essentially lost everything. And uh, for the first week that we were there, we spent a good bit of time just walking through some of these communities and getting to know uh, the people that we were going to be serving uh, during our time there. And I was completely overwhelmed and overcome by the brokenness that surrounded us. Day in and day out, we met families who had lost their homes, they had lost family members, they had lost loved ones, they had lost their crops, they had lost their sources of livelihood, and, and their lives were quite literally still 18 months later uh, in shambles. And I was just overwhelmed by the brokenness that surrounded, just stricken with grief, I couldn't sleep. Couldn't eat very well as I was listening to the stories of the people that we were there serving. And so the very uh, first Sunday that we came together for worship while we were there, uh, our team had actually been staying in the little chapel where the church would come together and meet on Sundays. We were sleeping there, and it was only about 2,000 square feet, the whole building. And uh, this Sunday morning, about 200 people, adults and kids, women, children, everyone was packed into this room. And I really didn't know what to expect. I felt like all week long at every single turn, we were just encountering brokenness and death and devastation, and it was just heart-wrenching every single moment that we, we had a conversation with someone or got to know someone new within the community, and I really didn't know what to expect. We came together, and I heard them sing. 
And I felt the walls in that building shake. And I felt the ground in the building moving with people who were exploding with praise to the glory of God. And, and so my heart was overcome with joy because I could not believe what I was hearing after what I had experienced all week long among a people who had lost absolutely everything to be singing at the top of their lungs to the glory and praise of God. And in the same breath, I was really overcome with grief because I felt like what they had was not something I had for myself. I was thinking back to just a week earlier when I was at my home church, a very large building in a particularly affluent church with, with plenty of resources, most of us coming from the security of our homes and coming from the security of food and the security of, of stable jobs, not having lost loved ones, not having lost friends, not having lost family members to a natural disaster. And yet so many of us just dragging into the building, going through the motions, checking our watches at the one hour mark, just simply trying to exist and, and just sort of make it for the little bit of time that we had together. And so as I stood there and I sang with those people in Southeast Asia on that Sunday morning 15 years ago, I just prayed in that moment, Lord, whatever it takes, I want, I want you to give me what these people have. I want to experience the joy that is found in this room, a joy that at that point in time, I don't know that I truly knew or understood in my life. So this morning, what we're doing in, is we're kicking off what's going to be over the next few months, a verse-by-verse uh, -verse study of the book of Philippians. And we have titled this message series, Invincible Joy invincible joy, because what we see all throughout the book of Philippians, a book that was written in dire circumstances at the hand of the Apostle Paul, is a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-saturated joy. The shallow, self-seeking, pop Christianity of the last 30 years in our culture has left many followers of Christ believing that joy in Jesus is contingent on our personal feelings of happiness. The way we have measured whether or not our faith is effective is based on our emotions and our circumstances and how we feel in a given period of time. So we will seek after songs, we will seek sermons, we will seek churches that will tap into and elicit our strongest feelings of personal pleasure. And the moment it becomes uncomfortable or the moment it becomes convenient, we assume and may even deceive ourselves into thinking that the Holy Spirit has stopped moving. But we, we forget oftentimes as we read the New Testament that, that the earliest followers of Jesus, their faith was born in the midst of most challenging circumstances. And so what we've gotten to as a place as followers of Christ, as, as affluent Christians by every objective measure, the wealthiest group of Christians that have ever lived in history, we have convinced ourselves that following Jesus Christ should be synonymous with comfort. But happiness is fleeting and circumstantial. It's an emotion that is completely contingent on having favorable circumstances. And as we've seen in the year 2020, the circumstances are not always favorable. It doesn't always come easy and things don't always go the way that we wish they were going. Even today as we're gathered together in this room, there's followers of Jesus Christ all across the globe who have risked all and who are suffering immensely because of their faith in Christ. In the year 2020, many of us even in this room this morning we're ready to wave the white flag on our jobs, over school, over our family, and maybe even over life itself. And the empty, shallow, feelings-oriented faith of pop Christianity is not going to be enough to sustain us through these challenges. But what we're going to see this morning and what we're going to see as we study this book over the next few months is that through Jesus Christ, 
we can have a serious and invincible joy that absolutely thrives in the face of adversity. So uh, just to give you a little bit of background and context for the book of Philippians before we just dive into the text this morning, uh, the letter of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul in the early 60s AD. This was written to Christians, or as he says, to the saints in Philippi, and he wrote this from a Roman prison along with uh, several other letters that we know now as the prison epistles. And the full background for the birth of the church in Philippi can be found in Acts 16, uh, verses 1 through 40. So Paul had planted this church in Philippi uh, about 12, 15 years earlier in uh, 80, 49, or 48 to 49. And for well over a decade, these people had been partners with Paul in the ministry of the gospel. And if you go back and you study the context and you read the whole passage there in Acts 16, we find that the church in Philippi had an absolutely incredible beginning. So Paul was on his second missionary journey, and we're told in Acts 16 that the Holy Spirit prevented him and those who were with him from going into different parts of Asia. So it's while they were in Troas, which was a major Trojan seaport, he receives a vision of a Macedonian man who was saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Acts 16.10, it says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So from Troas, they set sail for Macedonia, and it makes Philippi the first European city to receive the message of the gospel. Now, we don't have time to read the whole passage of verses 1 through 40 from Acts 16 today, uh, but here's just sort of the Cliff's Notes version of how the church in Philippi got started. Uh, you can go read this passage later. So again, Paul receives this vision to take the gospel to Macedonia, and when he arrives, uh, he meets Lydia, who scripture tells us is a seller of purple goods. Now, uh, this is a cue for us that these were luxury items that Lydia was, uh, was selling, and so she was in all likelihood a very affluent, a successful, wealthy businesswoman. She had a general belief in God, but not faith in Jesus Christ. So she was one of the types of people who would say, hey, I believe in God, I believe in a higher power, I believe in a greater being, and so she had a general awareness and understanding of God, but Paul shares the message of the gospel with her, and she comes to full knowledge of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, they go on from there, Paul and Silas, uh, as they're ministering in the community, they're going with Lydia, and as they're walking along, they start to get tailed by a slave girl who was demon-possessed. Okay, so that's a, a, a tricky situation, and as they're walking along, she's crying out over and over and over again, these men are servants of the Most High God. It's one of my favorite uh, passages of Scripture in all the Bible. In Acts 16, it says that Paul became greatly annoyed so she's just saying this over and over and over again. And so finally, he's had enough. He casts the demon out of her. And that's frustrating for her owners because uh, we learned from Acts 16 that she had a pretty lucrative business in fortune telling as the result of her demon possession. Now she's not gonna be making money for her masters anymore. So that makes them upset. And they orchestrate for Paul and Silas to be thrown in prison. And then right there in the middle of Acts 16, we see one of the most famous passages of scripture, famous stories of scripture in the New Testament, that it's around midnight and they're in the jail cell and Paul and Silas are, uh, in chains, but they're singing hymns and they're praying to the Lord. And miraculously at midnight, uh, the doors of the jail cells fly open, their chains are released of all the prisoners. And then the Philippian jailer who is overseeing them is overcome with grief because what he thinks is about to happen is that all of these guys are gonna escape on his watch. So he actually draws his sword. He's super dramatic. I mean, he's about to take his own life and Paul's like, stop, don't do that. And, and he says, we're all still here. We haven't left. And the jailer comes to Paul and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And so Paul and Silas reply to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that very night, the jailer and his family, they hear the message of the gospel, they believe, and they're baptized. And it's through these three characters, through this very successful businesswoman named Lydia, a demon-possessed slave girl, and a Philippian prison guard, the church in Philippi was born. It's an incredible story. And Paul loved these people. The Apostle Paul loved these people. Here we are 10 years later as he's, writing this, as he's writing this letter to them. He's imprisoned because of his gospel ministry, but they have not wavered in their support for him spiritually, relationally, or financially. We know that they send a man named Epaphroditus to visit Paul, and Epaphroditus gets very sick. He almost dies in the process of coming to serve Paul. So Paul writes them this letter for several reasons. He's uh, wanting to update them on the condition of Epaphroditus. He wants to thank them for their ongoing generosity. He wants to encourage them to persevere in the faith, but he also wants to make it abundantly clear that his joy and his faith in Christ have not been shaken. And at every single turn of this letter, he is directing their gaze to Jesus. The message of Philippians is that through a life fully surrendered to Jesus Christ, we can experience genuine, lasting, invincible joy that doesn't just survive but thrives in the face of the most dire circumstances. So for those of you who are following along in your notes this morning, this is really the central truth that we're going to see in this passage in these couple of verses, is that those who fully surrender their identity to Christ will fully secure their identity in Christ. You cannot become who it is that Christ intends for you to be until you give up who you have been trying to be. This is the paradox and promise of the gospel and of following Christ is that those who are willing to lose themselves will ultimately find themselves. So just like the believers that I had the privilege of worshiping with in Southeast Asia, what we see through Paul's witness and what we see through the ministry of the church in Philippi is that you can lose everything that you have but still have everything that you need if you have Jesus Christ. And this is the source of our invincible joy. So let's read again from Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Let's just pause there for a moment. We'll see first from this passage that all who are in Christ Jesus first must be willing to be identified as slaves. This is a a very visceral term that Paul uses here in verse 1. He identifies himself along with Timothy as a doulos, as a literally a slave or as a bond servant. Now, this word slave, as we know, it's a loaded term. And particularly depending on the historical and cultural context, this can be a deeply offensive term. And yet, for the Apostle Paul, who was by every objective measure the most effective follower of Jesus who has ever lived, he does not identify him as an apostle. He does not identify himself as a saint. He doesn't identify himself as a pastor. He doesn't identify himself as a church planter. He doesn't identify himself as a missionary. He willingly identifies himself as a slave. This term sets the stage for the rest of the book because what we see through the example of Paul is that the path to true joy comes from total surrender to Jesus Christ. As as you and I decrease in our need for personal glory, we will increase in our capacity for joy. It's as we empty ourselves, become more full of the power and the presence of God or the power of the Holy Spirit, it's in that moment that we experience the fullness of joy in Jesus Christ. And that joy is experienced over and over and over again as we live lives that are marked by sacrificial and self-giving love for our neighbor. And this perfectly summarizes Paul because at this point in his life, he has given up everything for the sake of Christ. 
He's given up everything. He's given up his status. He's given up his position. He's given up title. He's given up security. He's given up riches. He's given up his religious resume. And in chapter 3, we'll see here in several weeks, Paul reads off this religious resume. He's, he's writing these people saying, listen, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Like he was of the elite leadership class of the Jewish religious system. He says, when it came to the law, I was blameless. How many of us could say something like that? That we were perfectly fulfilling every line of God's law. Paul says, that was me. I was doing all of these things, yet this is how he summarizes it in Philippians 3, 7. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He's given up everything for Jesus. He's given up absolutely everything he has. He's willingly forsaken it all, and he has submitted himself as a bondservant, as a slave of Jesus Christ. This is Paul declaring, I am no longer my own master. I have a new master, and I've surrendered myself to him. But unfortunately, I believe many professing followers of Christ are too much like the pre-conversion Saul. We're eager to read off our religious report card and our spiritual resume. So in our cultural context, it's, well, you know, I was born into a Christian home, and I was uh, saved, and I was baptized when I was five years old, and I got all the gold stars on the Sunday school Bible memory chart, and I never missed a Sunday, and without fail, I give 10% of my income, and maybe you've even gone on a few mission trips, and we're ready to read off this whole list of accomplishments, and we have not yet counted as loss everything that we have gained. We're willing to, to stand and make it known how much it is that we've accomplished, but that is not the foundation of our salvation. We're so proud of our efforts, and yet for so many of us that have this testimony, there is still internally an emptiness that has never been satisfied because instead of emptying ourselves, we have exalted ourselves. And instead of being full of Christ, we're full of us. I think the key question that everyone here needs today to answer today, myself, you, all of us, that we need to answer is this. Have I fully surrendered myself? Heart and soul, mind and body, completely to Jesus Christ. Could you call Jesus your master? Does he direct and dictate your movements? Is he overseeing every element of your life? Have you willy, willingly surrendered yourself completely, heart and soul, mind and body, to Jesus Christ? And are we willing to follow Christ regardless of where this might lead? Again, Paul's circumstances here need to really cause us to pay attention because in our Western, affluent, materialistic, very convenience, addicted, I think, culture, following Jesus Christ has become almost synonymous with comfort. It's become synonymous with success. We've so associated Christianity with comfort, as a matter of fact, that anytime we do experience any sort of opposition, we assume we've done something wrong. But we assume that God has abandoned us and that he's departed from us and that he's left us. And that is the result of a faith that has been built on shallow, superficial happiness and not joy that can be found in Christ. So many of us have bought a Western gospel that says, follow Christ and you will have money. Follow Christ and you will have health. This is more of a 21st century phenomenon and you need to pay attention to it. In many cases, it's follow Christ and he, you can finally fulfill your legacy and your destiny and he will build up your name and you can unlock and reach your full potential, which ironically almost always looks like success in the eyes of the world. And very few of us have a theology that makes room for suffering and trouble. And we assume that when we experience these things, it's because we've done something wrong or because God has left us and forsaken us. But the very fact that the Apostle Paul is writing these words from prison should cause every single one of us to pause and say, you know what, this could cause me some trouble. This might not always go exactly the way I want it to go. 
And if it leads us into difficult places, it doesn't mean that we're being unfaithful. It may happen because we are being faithful, that we experience this sort of opposition. Are we willing to identify ourselves as slaves of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to recognize him as the master of our lives and faithfully follow him regardless of the cost? Many of us are very familiar with the famous poem Invictus. And we can have, as this poem states, an unconquerable soul, but we are not, as this poem states, the masters of our fate or the captains of our souls. If we are in Jesus Christ, we have a new master. We are no longer in the driver's seat. We are no longer the ultimate authority that is directing and guiding our lives. We have surrendered that to Jesus Christ. Church, understand, joy in Jesus does not come through our success for him. It comes through our surrender to him. Decrease our need for glory. We increase our capacity for joy. And so we ask the question this morning, are we willing with Paul to forsake all else and willingly identify, joyfully identify as slaves of Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate authority and master? Let's read the rest of verse one into verse two. Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So all who are in Christ Jesus first must be willing to be identified as slaves, but second, are worthy of being identified as saints. And I love that we we see both of these pictures right next to each other in these two verses. You have Paul in the ultimate humility, forsaking every worldly title that has ever been given to him for the joy of being identified as a slave of Jesus Christ, and yet he addresses the followers of Jesus in Philippi as well as saints. Now, uh, in many circles, the only way someone achieves sainthood is by living an exceptional life. So you think of the Roman Catholic Church in particular, this term is used to recognize a very unique and extraordinary class of individuals, but that is not the pattern of how this term is used throughout the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses the term saints dozens of times all throughout the New Testament, and every single instance he uses it in the plural to refer to a group of people, never once to refer to one single individual who just has extraordinary accomplishments. So the the term he uses, hagios, it simply means holy ones. And, And this is the designation of every single person who is a follower of Christ. Being a saint is not reserved for an exceptional class of Christians. It is reserved for everyone who is in Jesus Christ. And and this is where we could go wrong with our identity as slaves, is is that we take a term like that and then we begin to view ourselves in a very self-deprecating lens. So our our following of Jesus Christ, it, it could be this perpetual state of woe is me, I am inadequate, I am a failure, how could God ever love me? And I think sometimes we forget that self pity is actually just another form of sinful pride. Because what we're doing in that moment is we are saying things about ourselves that are not true based on what God's word has said about us. God's word calls us saints. We are made holy and righteous, and this is not our doing. This is a gift that has been given to us in grace. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his sinless, spotless perfection, we are made holy and blameless in the eyes of God. This is Ephesians 4. Paul writes it like this here. He says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God has done that for you in eternity past. 
He saw you and he's called you to himself and he justifies and he sanctifies and he saves and he makes us holy and blameless. He has accomplished this for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says of Jesus that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness or the holiness of God. And so we, we oftentimes, man, we lie to ourselves. We allow others to lie to us about who we are. We convince ourselves we're inadequate. We convince ourselves I can't measure up. We convince ourselves I'm unholy and I'm a failure and I'm full of sin. How could God ever love me? And there is a sense in which we want to walk with the humility of understanding our sinful condition. But church, that is no longer who you are through Jesus Christ. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are always, only, and continually seen by the Father through the lenses of the perfection of the Son. So he doesn't see you in your sin. He doesn't see you in your brokenness and in your failure. He sees continually the perfection of Jesus. And for that reason, Paul calls the Philippian church saints. And listen, Paul loved the church in Philippi, but he doesn't reserve this designation just for this, for them. You go read, for example, his letters to the Corinthians. Have you guys read First and Second Corinthians? Those people were crazy. They were, I mean, they were off the reservation. Paul said of the Corinthian church, he said, there's a kind of sexual immorality among you that's not even reported among the pagans. I mean, it was bad. And how does Paul address the church in Corinth? You are saints. It's not because of our own doing. It's because of what God has done for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You don't have to be formalized. You don't have to be canonized. You don't have to be recognized. You are a saint. And it's because of this we willingly identify as slaves. We, we look at the master who has called us to himself and who sanctified us and made us holy and blameless. And we look at that master, and it's not him beating us into subjugation and submission. It's us saying willingly, no, I will submit to that. That's the master I want over my life, is the one who saw me in spite of who I was and still said, that one's mine. And we willingly surrender our lives completely to him. You know, Paul's greeting here is, is really unique because out of all of his New Testament letters, if you, you go read the rest of them, this is actually the only letter where Paul greets the overseers and the deacons. And that, that's unique, I think, for a couple of reasons. And, and it's, it is unique, I think, to the church in Philippi because they've continued supporting. And so I think one of the main reasons he does this is because the church has been so unwavering in their support of Paul, which means that the elders, the overseers of the church, have continued to lead the congregation to be supportive of Paul in spite of the fact that he's in prison, maybe in spite of the fact that his ministry is not going at the pace that they would hope it would go. They've remained very supportive. They support him financially. They support him relationally. They're praying for him. They support him spiritually. Spiritually. And so uh, it's the elders and the overseers who are continuing to lead out in that effort, that they make sure the people are being supportive of Paul. They're sending others to be a ministry assistant to him. But then we also see, I think, in this picture of him addressing the overseers and deacons, this is the full circle of discipleship in Philippi. And go back to where we were at the introduction just a little bit ago, talking about the foundation of the Philippian church. You had this incredibly eclectic, diverse group of people that formed essentially the launch team of the church in Philippi. You had Lydia, who was a wealthy, successful businesswoman. You had the slave girl who had been demon-possessed. You have the Philippian jailer, who's just sort of a blue-collar worker type of guy. And it's from this incredibly eclectic, diverse group that the church in Philippi is born. And, and you know, what's amazing is, is I've, I've looked at, at this passage over the last couple of weeks and, and prepared for this morning you look at this group of three people, this is actually like the perfect group of people to plant a church with. 
And, and here's why, because uh, church planting, um, you need somebody who's willing to support that financially. That's Lydia. So she's gonna finance this mission and make sure Paul has what he needs resource-wise to accomplish his ministry. You need powerful stories of people whose, whose lives have been miraculously transformed by the gospel. And it doesn't get more miraculous than someone who is possessed by a demon. Like Paul gets to do ministry with this young girl and kind of point to her and be like, look, if Jesus can save her, he can save anybody. Like there's nothing that you have that he can't overcome. And then you get the Philippian jailer, just kind of a hard blue collar, you know, his own carry his lunch pail to work kind of guy. You know, someone who's maybe not wildly educated, but he's just willing to work and he's willing to serve and say, hey, hey, tell me what you need me to do. And, and you get this amazingly diverse group that, that really had no background in the faith whatsoever. And 12, 15 years later, they have become elders and deacons within the church. We see a church that has come to full maturity in Jesus Christ. And Paul is proud of this. He's incredibly proud of these people and he loves this church. And so it's made me wonder over the last couple of weeks as, as, I've, as I've considered this passage in light of our own congregation, if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter in the year 2020 to the people of Cross Community Church in Beaufort, South Carolina, what would he have to say to us? What would Paul have to say? Because he had uh, all sorts of different things that he addressed with the different churches that he was writing to. What would he say to us? Where would Paul encourage us? Where would Paul challenge us? Where would Paul correct us? How would he point our eyes to Jesus Christ? Because of that one fact, I am completely certain. Paul, in the midst of everything happening in 2020, he would turn our eyes to Jesus. We see it so much in the four short chapters of this, path, of, of this book of the Bible. Listen, you could read all of Philippians in about 10 or 12 minutes. It's, it's very short, just a few pages long. You sit there and ask, okay, Taylor, why are we spending 10 or 12 weeks? Because we can, church. Okay. We never fully mind the depths of God's word. And so we're going to really break this down. You can read it in a short amount of time. And this is what you find in the four short chapters of the book of Philippians. Paul uses the name Christ Jesus 12 times. He uses Jesus Christ eight times. He uses Jesus twice, and he uses Christ 16 times. Four short chapters of the Bible, Paul uses some form of the name of Jesus 38 times. And so this should be our first cue going into this message series this morning. If you want to experience the fullness of joy, if you want to walk and live in invincible joy, that's only going to be found in Jesus Christ. It's only going to be found in him alone. So if Paul was here today, what would he say to us as slaves and as saints? Where would he encourage us? Where would he challenge us? Where would he correct us? I think he'd say a few things. First, that we'll experience difficult circumstances. We need to expect this. Believing in Jesus Christ does not come with the promise of a life without trouble. It comes with the promise of God's presence through the trouble. And we take our cues here through the life of, of the Apostle Paul. He has faithfully followed Jesus, and the path to joy for Paul has led him to jail. And this is what we need to expect as followers of Christ. If we're going to faithfully follow Jesus Christ in this world, we will experience in some capacity opposition as we go. It's been said by a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. So don't quote me on this. Don't quote anybody else because I think about 50 different people take credit for this. But it's been said by a lot of people in a lot of different ways that Christians are like tea. And when you put us in hot water, our true colors come out. It's in the midst of adversity, it's in the midst of challenge that we truly see what it is that we're made of. Paul's faithfulness led him to a prison cell, so we should expect challenges as we follow in the steps of Jesus. I think secondly, Paul would tell us to engage in the mission of the church. 
continue engaging in the mission of the church. There's research from the Barna Group that was released in July. So this was just a few months into the pandemic. And this research indicated that in those few short months, as many as one-third of professing followers of Jesus in our nation had completely disengaged from the church. Most of us weren't meeting in person at that point in time in our church, but that, that meant they, weren't, they were watching online, weren't seeking fellowship with any believers, had totally detached, totally disconnected, had no real connection to the church. And I, I fear that what's happened over these last several months is that there's many followers of Christ, and there's even many churches who have sort of taken the posture that we're just going to just sort of wait this thing out. Let's just ride out the storm. Let's just do enough that we need to do to get by, to keep paying the bills, to, to make sure the building doesn't shut down. Let's just do what we got to do to just sort of suck it up and make it through this season in church. I'm sorry, but I just can't accept that. As we sit in this room this morning, not in Southeast Asia, not in Central Africa, not in the Middle East, in Beaufort, South Carolina, Beaufort County, South Carolina, as we sit in this room this morning, there are over 100,000 people in our county who, if they were to die today, would perish in eternity apart from Jesus Christ. And there's thousands of others who would profess faith in Jesus Christ who have no real connection to the local church. Church, the Great Commission does not stop just because we have challenges. It's looked different this year. We've had to find ways to be creative, and we've had to find ways to think outside of the box. You guys, how many of you envisioned Easter at a drive-in movie theater this year? Which, by the way, I think we need to bring back the air horns. That was fun. None of us envisioned this back at the beginning of the year, but the mission doesn't stop just because we have challenges. We don't sit back and punt and just hope that we survive the season. The type of life that Christ calls us to is a life that does not just survive, but thrives in the face of adversity. And this is the greatest opportunity, maybe in our nation's history, for the church of Jesus Christ to shine his glory. We're facing opposition. We're facing challenges. That might mean we're doing something right. Maybe we've actually started to bother the enemy a little bit with our efforts, that he's thrown us at this this year. We cannot accept that the Great Commission is just going to go on vacation because we've had a little bit of a challenge this year. No, we continue driving the mission forward. We see it evident in this passage of Scripture. Paul introduces this text. He says, Paul and Timothy. Now, what do we know about Timothy? Timothy was a protege of the Apostle Paul. He was a disciple of Paul. Paul's discipleship of Timothy, his ministry to the church, it didn't stop just because he was in jail. Listen, Paul was in like the ultimate quarantine. He was in jail. And it did not stop him from continue driving forward in the mission. If anybody had an excuse to just lay down and say, hey, I think we're going to ride this thing out till the end. If I, if I can just wait till things get back to normal and I'm not in prison anymore, then, then maybe we can re-engage the mission of the church. No, Paul continued driving forward. He knew that he wasn't guaranteed tomorrow. And so he poured his life into Timothy, and he continued pouring his life into the church. Dustin talked about this during our, our welcome this morning. That's why we as a church, we're, we're really trying to take advantage of this very unique season where, where so many of us are scattered, and Lord willing, there will be the day where we can fully reopen the doors and fully engage our community in the way that we wish. But what we're going to do as a church family this fall, we are going to double down on equipping ourselves for this mission. That's why we're going to work through growing up in our community groups this year. We want to make you a disciple who is equipped to make disciples so that we can, regardless of the challenges that we're experiencing, continue driving forward the mission of the church. So we continue to engage this mission. Third, I think Paul would tell us that we need to extend grace and peace to others. We, we see this in the greeting of, of Paul here in verse 2. 
this greeting of grace and peace, it was intended to reach a wide audience. Grace was more of a Greek greeting. The, the word that he uses there is more of a Greek term. And then peace is more of a traditional Jewish greeting. And so it's a very broad audience of Jews and Gentiles that Paul is uh, intending to extend this message to. And it's from a prison cell that Paul's not asking, hey, will you pray for God's grace and peace for me? He's praying God's grace and peace over them. He has found joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ that enables him to continue ministering even in the most dire of consequences. And sadly, I think it's become evident through our participation in the online world over the last six months that for many followers of Jesus, we are no different than the rest of this world when it comes to how we respond to trouble. But we just, we see it on, those of you who, who are engaged at all in the online world, I mean, it doesn't take much. We see it every single day. We see followers of Christ who are engaged in the same bickering, in the same gossip, in the same complaining, in the same venting of frustrations. We've been given these platforms that we could globally expand the message of the gospel overnight. And instead, what we're doing is we'd use it as a platform to vent about how much we don't like our jobs and how much we don't like masks and how much we don't like what's happening with the upcoming election. What we've seen it happen within our own church, division with our own church body of those who are arguing with one another online. Listen, Christian followers of Christ, I think here's a good rule of thumb for us. If you know the person well enough, talk to them personally. If you don't know them at all, it's somewhere I think in the book of Deuteronomy, get over thyself. Let's move on. We, we can actually keep minding our business and not engage and not need to have this Messiah complex in the online world that we're going to right all the wrongs with our opinions. I want to give you a challenge for, for one single week. Followers of Jesus, as we seek to be a people who extend grace and peace in the face of challenging consequences for one, or cha- challenging circumstances, for one single week, I want to ask you to do this. Nothing on your social media feed except for Scripture, your personal testimony, the, the basics of the message of the gospel, maybe articles that build up and edify the church, and just for fun, pictures of goofy things your family's doing. And for one single week, nothing about the pandemic, nothing about the upcoming election, for goodness sake, nothing about masks, nothing about conspiracy theories. Let's be people who blow up this cesspool of misinformation with the hope and the beauty and the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friend, if you can't do that for one single week, time to delete your account because you don't have the maturity to hold what's at your fingertips. This is our opportunity as a church to be people who have found ultimate joy and satisfaction in Jesus to extend grace and peace in the midst of the chaos. That's what Paul was doing here, and I think that's what we can be called to do in our circumstances this year. Last, I think Paul would challenge us and encourage us to empty ourselves before Jesus Christ to fully surrender our lives and ourselves to our ultimate master. I want to go back and ask the question I asked a short while ago. Have you surrendered yourself, heart and soul, mind and body, completely to Jesus Christ? Have you given it all to Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your religious resume? Are you willing to lay down your family history? Are you willing to lay down your broken, sinful past to Jesus Christ who makes us holy and blameless through faith in his name? And is the conduct of our lives, the conduct in our relationships, the conduct in the online world, does it reflect those who are saints, who are holy and blameless in the eyes of God? Church, I think it would do us all very, very well to spend our time this week meditating on the words of Jesus in Matthew 12, 36, where he reminds us on the day of judgment, we will give account for every careless word we speak. We need these reminders. 
Does our conduct represent the grace and peace of Jesus Christ? And are we taking into consideration how our actions impact the eternity to come? As we deny ourselves, become full of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. As C.S. Lewis, who said so well, your real new self will not come as you were looking for it. It will come when you were looking for him. You decrease in your need for glory, you increase your capacity for joy, and it's through that total and complete surrender to Jesus Christ that we get to live in the security of becoming who it is he's called us to be. We're saints through faith in his name and the blood of his son. So we come to Jesus, and in coming to Jesus, we discover an invincible joy that thrives in the face of adversity and is not going to be shaken regardless of our circumstances. So, Father, as we close this morning, we ask that we would walk in the fullness of this joy, that our hearts would explode with joy in Jesus Christ, that we would be able to demonstrate to the watching world what it looks like to thrive in the midst of frustrating adversity. Father, to extend grace and peace in the midst of a world that is hostile and full of chaos. God, would we hide in our hearts the truth of your word? Would that be the first thing to come off of our mouths? Would it be at the tip of our lips constantly the grace and the peace that you call us to extend to others, the same grace and the peace that you've shown us through your son, Jesus? Lord, will we make that known to a lost and dying world? So Holy Spirit, fill our hearts, fill our minds with this word. Help us to walk this week in your joy. Father, for the person who's here this morning who's struggling and hurting, give them a joy through faith in you that cannot be shaken regardless of their circumstances. A joy that shines the light of Jesus Christ no matter what challenge they're facing. That their testimony could be to a lost and dying world that you are worthy of our surrender. So Father, be glorified as we sing. Be glorified today as we go. Fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit that we could be a blessing to others and make known your grace and peace in this world. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen, amen.